bloodthirsty king and his henchmen were right on the heels of King David, and it looked like they were going to grab him. But at the 11th hour, in God's providence, Saul has to leave to go and fight the Philistines. But as soon as that was done and dusted, Saul didn't waste any time. It's hunting season's back on again. And he's after his prey. And he finds that his prey is hiding in the caves of Engedi. Now, I've been to Engedi. Okay, so I actually have pictures of it, but then I didn't have time, so I just I ripped those off Google. But I took pictures. And Gedi is a it's an amazing place. Along the western shore of the Dead Sea in Israel, limestone cliffs suit straight up into the sky. It's a, it's a maze of craggy slopes and rocky outcroppings. And wedged between these rugged limestone spines are, are steep ravines. And one of these ravines is surprisingly fertile. You can see it there. A series of waterfalls land in small pools and the green vegetation. It's amazing when you go, I've, I've been, like I said, I've stood right here because behind you is the Dead Sea and you're there. Lisa, you've been there, right? Sorry to embarrass you. So, um, yeah. And so behind, behind you is the Dead Sea, which is about as, well, dead and dry as you can possibly imagine. And yet you're in this oasis in this little spot called Engedi. Uh, you might have heard when Jeanette read, it says that the text uses the expression, the wild goat's rocks. Did you see that? It sounds like a water slide at, in the, somewhere in Queensland or something like that, in an amusement park. But, but it's probably referring to a goat-like creature called an ebex. Right? And in Ebex, um, I snapped a couple pictures of them. Yeah, um, they look like that. Um, they're, they're interesting little creatures. And being the larrikin that I am when we were on tour, um, we, we, one of the guys that happened to be on the Israel tour with us was a hunter. His name was Ken, and I kept saying, Ken, you want to hunt one of those? You want to eat one of those things, don't you? You want to? And he was like, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I knew you did. I knew you did. Anyway, after April was done rolling her eyes at me saying all those things, if you take the time to walk up the gorge far enough, uh, you eventually come to more waterfalls which have their origin in this place that we're reading about here in the text called Engedi. I mean, honestly, guys, it's truly an, it's an oasis in these barren cliffs, a place where you can find shade and water. We were there, it was like 40 degrees at least. And you, you get in Engedi and you're like, oh, I don't want to go anywhere. I mean, it's like this natural air-conditioned place. It's, it's, it's really amazing. And it's this exact spot in Engedi which David and his men are hiding out. And would you believe it? I mean, can you believe it? As they're tucked into this cave, as they're sipping on spring water, who walks in? <laughs> of all people. Well, 24. Chapter 24, let's get there. 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting there in the innermost parts of the cave. I mean, I, really, is this stuff in the Bible? I mean, this, this seems more like a movie, doesn't it? I mean, here is Saul with his, his special forces, his elite fighting force. They're going through the highways and byways, looking for David when nature calls. But the cave 
Saul chooses to do his business, the outdoor dunny that he picks, <laughs> the one David and his men, right? Which one is it? It's the one that they're hiding in. And when he, when he enters the cave, he doesn't see them, right? He, he's just come in from the hard glare of the desert sun, so his eyes, you know, when you go somewhere and your eyes can't really focus yet? It's coming, it, it is, like I said, four degrees, hot, his eyes haven't adjusted, but he, he's not really looking for men. He's, he's there for other matters, right? And so there he is. Now put yourself for a second. I want you to do this. Put yourself, remember David and his 600 men? Put yourself in their shoes. They've been constantly on the run, living from cave to cave because of this guy. Let's be real. Caves aren't ideal places for morale building. They are dark, wet, cold, and stale. But this is their place of residence to this very day. And there they are when suddenly there's a shadow across the mouth of the cave. Someone just came in and they're floored to discover that it's Saul. None to mention he's unarmed and alone. Even his personal bodyguard wouldn't go with him for this one. So what do you do? The man who's caused you so much grief. You have someone like that in your life? Caused you grief? Seems like they're just hell-bent on making your life miserable? That's what Saul was to these guys. What do you do? The man who's caused you so much grief is right in front of you, plus he's oblivious to your presence He's ungirded, and he's unarmed. Well, I'll tell you what they say. Verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now is the chance, David. Murder this guy. I mean, you can picture David kind of listening to them. They're all kind of stretched, whispering. You can picture David moving along the wall of the cave, dagger in hand, creeping up to Saul. And he, as he pulls back his weapon to strike, you can see the men sort of nodding to each other. But then, to the shock and horror of everybody, what does he do? Just cuts off a piece of clothes. <gasps> piece of cloth. I mean, can you imagine the looks of disappointment and, and, and likely probably rage that came across their faces? What is he doing? Are you kidding me? Look at verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him. So, sorry, for end of verse 4. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. It's amazing. So as we saw last week, God's hand of providence was upon David's life. So it would appear, I mean, it would seem, right? If that's true, that he's given Saul right into his hand. Here's his opportunity to vanquish his foe. Here's his opportunity to kill him. But listen, friends, opportunity does not mean permission. 
Just because you have an opportunity to do something doesn't mean you're permitted to do it. Just because God has opened up the possibility of a certain course of action does not make that action right. You see, it, it was one thing, it was one thing to have the promise of the kingdom, but how the kingdom should come to David was another matter. And so he refuses to grab something that's not his. By the way, this kind of test isn't isolated and confined to David. It comes to all God's servants. It is the temptation to take the shortcut. That's what it is. It's the temptation to take a shortcut. Let's be honest. Let's be real. If you cut corners, if you're just a little, not massively dodgy, just a little dishonest in your work, you could probably get ahead. But if the only way to get ahead is to take the shortcut and sin and lie, it's not worth it. It's not becoming of a Christian either, by the way. If the only way to keep a relationship, someone that you're dating, is to compromise physically, it's not worth it. If the only way to end the present suffering that you are undergoing is to end your life. Don't. Friend, Jesus said, the thief, the devil comes to kill and steal and destroy. I have come, then they might have life and have it abundantly. The only way to get out of a discomfort is to compromise and take a shortcut it's not worth it. It's not worth selling your soul for that. Look, David doesn't mistake this opportunity to take Saul's life as a God thing. Would have been sure easy to justify it, right? I mean, look at all the harm he's causing people in his kingdom. Look at all the harm he's causing my men, 600 men. If we can just get rid of this guy, it'll do everyone a favor. And after all, I'm the anointed king, so... And I haven't lost my mind. But he still needs to submit to the moral principles that God has laid down in his word. Which proves, what does that prove? You know, at least proves that he, he is qualified to be king. Right? He, he's not trying to usurp the throne by force, by some coup, by some vendetta. That's what he says here. Look what he says in verse 8. Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and he called after Saul. My Lord, the King. You just wonder if that sent goosebumps down Saul's spot. You know, just, whoa. He hears David's voice. He turns around. And notice, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you your harm? Behold, this, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life and seek to take it. It's interesting, isn't it? Rather than cursing his ruler... 
David honored him by calling him both my Lord and the king. And rather than falling upon Saul in a murderous attack, he fell upon the ground and paid homage. So that one day, one day when David sits on the throne, nobody will be able to say that he got there by violence. It's actually the reverse. He trusted God to avenge him. And look what he says in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? A flea? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hands. You hear what he's saying? You can't do wrong to get what is right. There's no shortcuts. That's why Paul has something very similar to say in Romans 12. I want you to think for a second as I read this. Think of someone that you struggle. Maybe you don't hate that person, but you really don't like them. And they've, they've intentionally been mean to you. They've intentionally tried to provoke you. Maybe it's someone who's no longer alive anymore but you still have animosity towards them. You struggle not to, at least. You with me? Listen to the words of Paul. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look, guys, if you're a Christian, you can have confidence that at the right time and in the right way, God will bring justice. I mean, David could have, David easily could have killed him right here, but he spared him. He, he's a flea, as he says, but he's a flea who doesn't bite. He's a dead dog who doesn't bite. And, and you know, as you're sitting there right now, you might go, yeah, I see that's in the Bible, but when I've done that in the past, I've, I've actually copped it. You know what I mean? In other words, I, I've done that, and then what's happened? It's only just sort of backfired on me. I sort of wonder if David, David felt that way. You know, David's main commander, a guy named Joab, a pretty, pretty reckless guy. If we ever get to 2 Samuel, you, you'll see that, man, he is, he, he's constantly sort of pushing back on David. And there's an interesting book by a guy named Gene Edwards, and, and he says this. This is, again, just his imagination, but I find this really fascinating. I was reading this to my kids, and they said, Dad, you got to read it. So this is Joab. So you imagine, there goes Saul. Opportunity, lost. And there goes Saul, and he goes back to his palace, and there that night, I don't think David's men 
Again, they're not able to sit where we're sitting and say, well, yeah, because one day David's going to become the king and blah, blah, blah. They're not on this side of it. Does that make sense? So as they're sitting in that space, in that cave, they're going, dude, really? So this is Joab. Why, David? Why? The men stirred about restlessly. Gradually and very uneasily, they began to settle in. All were as confused as Joab, who finally voiced their questions. Joab wanted some answers now. David should have seemed embarrassed, or, or at least defensive. He was neither. He was looking past Joab like a man viewing another realm that only he could see. Joab walked directly in front of David, looked down on him, and began roaring his frustrations. Many times, he almost speared you to death in his palace. I saw that with my own eyes. Finally, you ran away. Now for years, you have been nothing but a rabbit for him to chase. Furthermore, the whole world believes the lies he tells about you. He has come, the king himself, hunting every cave, pit, and hole on earth to find you and kill you like a dog. But tonight, you had him. At the end of his own spear, you did nothing. Look at us. We're animals again. Less than an hour ago, you could have freed us all. Yes, you, you could have freed us right now. Free, and Israel too. She would be free. Why? Why, David? Why did you not end these years of misery? There was a long silence. Men shifted again, uneasily. They were not accustomed to seeing David rebuked. Because, said David very slowly, and with a gentleness that seemed to say, I heard what you asked, but not the way you asked it. Because once, long ago, he was not mad. He was young. He was great. Great in the eyes of God and men. And it was God who made him king. God, not men. Joab blazed back. But now he is mad. And God is no longer with him. And David, he will yet kill you. This time. It was David's answer that blazed with fire. Better he kill me than I learn his ways. Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge. I will not destroy the Lord's anointed. Not now. Not ever. Joab could not handle such a senseless answer. He stormed out into the dark. I think that's really good. People are going to think, the world doesn't see, you know, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. What's meekness? It's power under control. In a secular society, they're not going to be like, oh, that's really good. They're going to be like, you're soft, you're weak. You let that person get away with it. You need to strike back. What are you doing? Jesus says, blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Now Saul acknowledges the way David treated him. And look what he says in verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord 
put me in your, into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. You know, what is sad about this is that his response, as genuine as it may be in the moment, is ultimately superficial. Sure, it's, it's sentimental. You can see that. He's weeping. But it's short-lived. Because if you just flip over in the next chapter, not 25, but the next one and 26, it seemed, we got deja vu. Deja vu. So 24, David refuses to take a shortcut while in a cave. And now, same thing, David refuses to take a shortcut while in a tent. See if this sounds similar to you from, from the last, the previous chapter. Listen to this. Chapter 26. Then the Zophites, sounds like something out of Star Trek. Then the Zophites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill country of Hakaliah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Zuf with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Zuf. And Saul encamped in the hill country of Hakaliah. Does, does that not sound the same thing? Right? You can hear it again. You see what I mean by deja vu? In both these chapters, David is fleeing from Saul. Right? Each episode, he has an opportunity to kill Saul, but refuses. He took a piece of evidence to prove that he could have actually done that. Right? As we're going to see now, it's his spear and it's his water jug. In the last chapter, it was a piece of his garment. And each time, in both chapters, Saul recognized David's superiority. So with this chapter, we're not told, though, it's interesting, we're not told why David went down into the camp. It, it could be an area of temptation. Notice verse 6. And David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and Joab's brother, Abishai, that's his nephew, by the way, Abishai, and what, what nephew doesn't want to impress their uncle, right? And, and so he, he finds an opportunity to impress his uncle, and they went, they go down into the camp of Saul. So he says, who will go down? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. Verse seven, so David and Abishai went down to the army by night and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, oh, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. And David, I know you've got a conscience issue over this. That's fine. Look, I'll do it. Right? I, I get it. I, you know, I know Joab spit chips at you afterwards, oh, but let me do it. I'll do your dirty work. Notice there. God has given your enemy into your hand. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Ab Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. See his trust of God there? How long is that going to take, by the way? Two years, 10 years, 20 years? He, David doesn't know. Yeah, he's been promised the kingdom, but what, is, is he going to be like, you know, the current king who's going to only have his reign for like the next five years or 10 at the most? Right? Waits forever to get it? What's going on here? 
How long is, how long is that going to be? He doesn't trouble himself. He doesn't bother with worrying about that. He trusts the Lord. God is sovereign. He is good. David knows that. The Lord forbid, verse 11, that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. It's interesting that you keep hearing that theme. Ah, don't kill, don't strike the Lord's anointed. The term there, Lord's anointed, is Mishiach, which means Messiah, right? And that, that the king is to represent God on earth. So to strike the king down would be to, in a sense, strike God's institution of kingship, God, God's anointing, God's plan, God's person. Make sense? So that, that David understands things. And, and you know, interesting, why didn't these guys wake up as they're having this theological debate here, right? He's the Lord's anointed. Da, da, da. Well, it's because God put, notice, the enemies into a deep sleep. I'm going to just throw this out one for fun. But where else do we hear that phrase in the Old Testament that God put him into a deep sleep? That's right. And so there's this temptation. Could it be there's an echo here where another son of Adam comes with a temptation but actually succeeds, at least for this one? I'm just going to throw it out there for fun, but it's an interesting thought. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. It's really interesting. This deep sleep came from the Lord, perhaps as a test. David did not strike because he knew the Lord rewards. Why, did, why didn't he do so? Again, he has another opportunity. He doesn't even have to do it. He can let his nephew do it. Well, because you know the Lord rewards righteousness and faithfulness. Look at verse 22. And David answered and said, Here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against, there it is again, the Lord's anointed. Do you see, David refuses to take a shortcut, be it that in a cave be that in a tent. Why? Like, why? Because God calls his people to righteousness and faithfulness as they wait for him to make good on his promises. If you get nothing else today, get that one. God calls his people to righteousness and faithfulness. God calls you to righteousness and faithfulness as you wait upon him to make good on his promises, not take a shortcut. I wonder, as you've been sitting there even now, perhaps the Lord's brought something into your mind, an area of your life where you're, you are taking a shortcut. And you know it's sinful. You know, the, the glorious news about all this, friends, is we have, we've all taken shortcuts, but we have Jesus' provision, the gospel to help us not take revenge and shortcuts. You know, it'll be years from now when David's greater son will face a similar test to take a shortcut. The devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, I'll, I'll give you all of these, Jesus, if you just 
take a shortcut. Just, 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 just bow down and worship me. You see? But God's will must come to pass in God's way. Not a shortcut that the devil offered, but through humiliation, through the cross, suffering, then glory. So we have Jesus' provision, and we also have Jesus' example. When Christ goes to the cross, he does not take a shortcut. He does not take revenge, as 1 Peter 2 says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ is the greatest example of someone not taking a shortcut. And you hear the language that Peter says this? Leaving you an example. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Well, Jesus said, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek as well. You still want to follow Jesus? I'm not call, that's not calling for passivism, but it's meekness, power under control. In God's providence, dear friend, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that there's going to be an opportunity for you to take a shortcut in the next few days, maybe this afternoon, a sinful shortcut. And Christ calls you not to. He is our ultimate trailblazer of humility by not taking a shortcut. And because of his perfect, sinless life, you can be forgiven of your sin. All the areas where you've taken a shortcut, where you've compromised, if you look to Christ, he can take your sins away. Though they be like scarlet and you're dark by them, he can make you as white as snow. But you need to place your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not in trying to be better, not in trying to roll up your sleeves and not take shortcuts. It's only through faith in Christ that you can be forgiven. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Turn to the Lord. Turn to Christ, dear friend. Let's pray. Lord, again, we look to you, our King, our Sovereign, our true Monarch. Lord, we pray that for those that have not turned to you, would you grant them faith and repentance now? Lord, help us that are in this room that want to follow the way of the Master, want to follow Jesus. Remind us of these truths this week. We pray that we would say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We pray that you would help us to live self-controlled and upright lives in this present and godless age that we live in. May we shine like stars because of your work in us. In Christ's name, amen.